0: Good evening. This uh, past spring, both of my parents uh, celebrated their 91st birthdays. Uh, They're within a a month or so of each other in age. Uh, Maybe celebrated isn't quite the right way to put it. Um, They haven't felt that celebratory about birthdays in recent years. And this past July was their 69th wedding anniversary which is a long time to do anything. <laughs> it's a long time to breathe, let alone stay married to the same person. <laughs> but they're still together. They live together and they seem to like each other most of the time anyway. And at times they're quite affectionate. It's really lovely to see. I had a friend visit a couple of years ago when I was actually living with them and they were still in their own home. And she was talking to me recently and saying how touched she had been by, by seeing my parents sitting on the couch, holding hands, um, which as their son, I don't tend to notice that kind of thing so much, I think. So there's a lot of good things there, but life isn't so easy when you're 91, no matter how, how good things are. And there are days when I am around them, when I can see that it's a, it's a drag for sure my sister and I have been pretty involved with their care over the last few years, helping them to move when it became obvious that they couldn't live uh, on their own anymore. And at one point I even moved back in on a more full-time basis with them uh, out of altruistic motivation. I I had this idea that I would make it possible for them to stay in their their home, which they loved dearly. It was a house I grew up in since I was a year and a half old. And uh, so, you know, and I reflected on the Buddhas. Uh, in the Anguttara Nikaya, he talked about one's debt to one's parents and said you could carry them around on your back with them urinating and defecating on you, and you still would not repay the debt you owe them for caring for you when you were a child. It seems a little extreme, but, um, <laughs> but I did bring it to mind. Uh, But it proved not, proved to be not such a great idea for me or for them in some ways. It's always a good reality check to spend time with family, with parents, especially maybe. It can be kind of easy to feel, you know, clear and equanimous and occasionally wise at retreat centers and monasteries where I tend to spend a lot of time. (laughs) But uh, living with my parents. I'm uh, sobering. You know, f- find myself behaving like a morose teenager or an angry child. And you know, I'm I'm 54, middle-aged, supposed to be at least a bit mature. Yeah, I'm a meditation teacher, so you know, more practice is required. But although my parents' health is still fairly okay compared with to a lot of people, you know, they're not taking a lot of medicines and they're both mobile and can take care of their basic needs with a little help. Uh, But there's been a real decline in the last couple of years, especially for my mom, she's pretty frail and running out of energy. And she has fairly advanced uh, dementia, so her mind is not working too well, memory is pretty shot. And my dad has what they call congestive heart failure. So his, just means his heart is running out wearing down. So his legs swell and his trouble with his breathing sometimes. Sometimes my mother will say if I visit her in the morning that she, she wishes she could have died in her sleep or that she had a button she could push and, you know, call it quits. Not every day, bad days. And my father says similar things when he gets upset. And, uh, so it's not easy growing old. And a lot of the time we don't really like to think about it so much. There's a lot of dukkha in their lives, a lot of resistance and denial to, to the whole thing. And our modern, our Western culture really conditions in us a, a strong uh, aversion to these subjects. We try to avoid them at all costs. In many ways, you know, we see life, life is happening now and old age and death will happen somewhere down the road. Hopefully it's down a very long road. And sometimes there's almost a, a sort of unconscious, almost an unconscious arrogance of a kind with this attitude. as though old age and death are happening to someone else. You know, we're, it's happening to other people and we're alive and well relatively young, and we'll deal with these things later when they come, when the time comes. And our culture glorifies youth so much of the time, youth and youthfulness, and we put it up on a pedestal and it's almost as though we're not supposed to get old, as though getting old is evidence of some kind of personal failure or a reflection of bad taste and we hide our old folks away in nursing homes you know out of sight out of mind and if growing old is seen as as evidence of some kind of personal failure then dying is the ultimate and ultimate in bad taste you know and we really hide hide death and dying away here in the west especially you know best not to look at it and we have, we sanitize the dead in funeral parlors and we try to make them look attractive and alive as though they're just maybe taking a nap or something. And, and a lot of the result of this is that there's this conditioning of a, of a sometimes unconscious, I think, but a widely held fear of death. You know, we really do a lot to keep it out of consciousness and one way we do this is by focusing a lot of our energy on getting and having, acquiring material possessions and knowledge, friends, lovers, degrees, all of the things that we we focus our attention on getting and acquiring. And we use these things as a way to define ourselves and to enhance our sense of who we are. And this can help to shield us from really contacting these fundamental kinds of realities of aging and sickness and death. But the truth is that aging, sickness and death are are part of life. They're an inevitable and natural part of life, (laughs) come to all of us. Even the Buddha found this. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. It's the Jara Sutta. Jara is the Pali word for aging or old age. I have heard that on one occasion, the Blessed One was staying near Savati in the Eastern monastery at the palace of Migara's mother. Now on that occasion, the Blessed One on emerging from seclusion in the late afternoon, sat warming his back in the Western sun the Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to him, he began to massage the Blessed One's limbs with his hand and said, it's amazing, Lord, it's astounding how the Blessed One's complexion is no longer so clear and bright. His limbs are flabby and wrinkled, his back bent forward. There's a discernible change in his faculties, the faculty of the eye, of the ear, the faculty of the nose, tongue, and of the body. That's the way it is, Ananda. When young, one is subject to aging. When healthy, subject to illness. When alive, subject to death. The complexion is no longer so clear and bright. The limbs are flabby and wrinkled, and the back bent and forward. And there's a discernible change in the faculties, the faculty of the eye, the ear, the nose, and so on. I I love this description, you kind of get a feeling of them as you know real people. The Buddha in his old age warming his son, and Ananda giving him a back rub. And you know, we think of him as always looking like the statue behind me or something kind of an idealized version. But you know he he had the aches and pains of old age like anyone might. So in a way you could say we're aging from the moment of our birth. Jean Cocteau put it this way. Since the day of my birth, my death began its walk. It is walking toward me without hurrying. So we have no idea when, when illness might come to us or when we might die. There's no guarantees. We're not actually guaranteed even the next breath. And when death does come, it will take all of our acquisitions away including our sense of self. It's not waiting for us at the end of some long road. In a way it's our constant companion and it walks along with us for our whole life. (coughs) And the fear and resistance we have to these subjects, to the idea of aging and sickness and death, and sometimes it can really rob us of a certain vitality in our lives. We can spend a lot of time and energy avoiding and repressing this fear. It can be very unconscious in a way. And we lose out on much of what life and living have to offer because of this fear and our attempts to avoid facing it. It can sometimes really rule our life and keep us from living in the fullest possible way. I've seen this with members of my family and friends where There's this current of fear about these things, age, old age and illness and death. And I see it affecting so many of their choices and the way they live their lives in a way that really robs them of a lot of the fullness of life. But if we can actually face this fear, it can enhance our life. It can open us to a, a new way of living into a fullness and richness where we really start to make the best possible use of our time. And the Buddha said, this was one of his fundamental teachings, he said that it's our attachments, all that we grasp and cling to, especially our sense of self that is the cause of suffering in our lives. And this goes to the heart of the second noble truth, the truth of the cause of dukkha of suffering. it's not something to be believed in just because one of us or we all say it over and over, you know, it's something to look at for ourselves and see, see if this is really true. That's the purpose, the point of this, of our practice. But if we can live with the understanding that death will eventually part us from all of our attachments, from everything that we hold on to, including whatever sense of self we may hold. Then we may be able to start letting go of these things now, and this can save us from a lot of suffering down the road. This is a quote from Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who is a very famous uh, teacher monk in Thailand in the last century. It is usually proclaimed eloquently that birth, aging, and death are suffering, but birth is not suffering. Aging is not suffering. Death is not suffering. Where there is not attachment to my birth, my aging, my death. In this moment, we are grasping at birth, aging and death as ours. If we don't grasp, they are not suffering. They are only bodily changes. So there are five contemplations that the Buddha recommended that we reflect on frequently. And this is a short sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya. He said, there are five facts. He's speaking to the monks. There are five things, O monks, which ought to be often contemplated upon by everyone, whether man or woman, householder, or one gone forth as a nun or monk. What five? I am subject to aging, aging is unavoidable. I am subject to illness, illness is unavoidable. I am subject to death, death is unavoidable. I will grow different, separated and parted from all that is dear and beloved to me. I am the owner of my actions, the owner of my kamma. I am heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and live dependent on my actions. Whatever I do, for good or for ill, to that I will fall heir. So he's recommending this for everyone, frequently. Now, this might not sound like the cheeriest list of subjects, and sometimes we might notice some resistance arising when we first hear this list. You know, sure, we're, we know we're all know we're gonna get old and have sickness in our lives and eventually die. We know that you can't take it with you, as they say, but why dwell on these dreary subjects? Isn't it better to focus on enjoying life while we can? Maybe Buddhism will strike us as a kind of downer religion or tradition. You know, first we're told life is suffering. Now you ask us to contemplate old age sickness and death. Bummer. (laughs) (coughs) But these are the teachings, the core teachings on impermanence. You know, we don't mind investigating the teachings on impermanence in the world around us. But these kinds of contemplations are hitting kind of close to home. We might think, well, life is hard enough without dwelling on morbid subjects. But the point of these contemplations is not to make us feel bad or to somehow create some kind of a sense of resignation or powerlessness in the face of the inevitable. We might fear that if we do such reflections like this, that it will be depressing for us. But actually, we'll often find that the opposite proves to be true. Because if we are living within, um, perhaps unacknowledged, but if there's a, a layer of fear in our lives, a fear of death, of aging infirmity, then by coming face to face with these things, with our fears, we can start to undo some of our conditioning around them we can see that they're impermanent and empty of self. If we bring them to the surface of our awareness, we can start to let them go. Then they no longer weigh heavily in our lives. We'll feel lighter and more at ease. This is another, a quote from another Thai forest master, Ajahn Lee Damadaro. He said, aging, illness and death are treasures for those who understand them. They're noble truths, noble treasures. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. And that's a different kind of attitude than trying to avoid thinking about them. So the purpose of these reflections is to allow us to take take a stand on reality in our lives, on the truth of things. And they can awaken in us a sense of the preciousness of our life. And they can connect us with the spirit of what is called samvega in Pali. Samvega usually translated as spiritual urgency. As I've gotten older, it seems like the passage of time has, has sped up. Anybody notice this happening? It seems that the years go by so quickly now. And I turn around and another one has passed. (laughs) And certainly the perception of time is not a fixed thing. You know, we can be here in the hall and a single meditation period can last an eternity and then a year of our life has gone by in an instant. There was a teaching in, again, in the Anguttara Nikaya where the Buddha is quoting another teacher. Occasionally he did that. This was a teacher named Araka, who said this about life's brevity. Short is the life of human beings, limited and brief. This one should wisely understand. One should do good and live a pure life, for none who is born can escape death. And then he goes on with this list of similes about the, sh- the brevity of life. Just as a dewdrop on the tip of a blade of grass will quickly vanish at sunrise and will not last long, even so a human life is like a dewdrop, it will not last long. And just as when rain falls from the sky in thick drops, a bubble appearing on the surface of water will vanish and will not last long, so too is a human life like this, it will not last. And just as a line drawn in water with a stick will vanish and will not last long, so too is a human life short and does not last. So this is one way of connecting to this quality of samvega, of spiritual urgency, where we touch our own mortality very directly. We connect to the truth of how fragile and brief life can be, not in a morbid kind of way, but in a way that we touch the beauty and the preciousness of life. And in a way that makes us want to make the best use of our time. We can look at our life from this kind of perspective when we ask ourselves, what really matters in life? What is really worth doing? This is a poem by Mary Oliver called The Summer Day. Some of you might have heard it. It speaks to this question of what's worth doing in life. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And it's certain that all of us here on the retreat have some connection to some sense of this quality of spiritual urgency in our lives, or we wouldn't be here, we wouldn't come here. You know, it takes a big commitment to come to a retreat like this in a lot of ways, all of the things that we have to do to make it possible to be here. And there's not many people in the world who would even consider spending a month or two months this way. You know, we could have gone on vacation, gone to the beach, So there's some connection to this sense of looking at what's worth doing in life that's here for all of us. But it's a question that's always worth revisiting, I think, to ask ourselves, what is really worth doing? What is it that I plan to do with my wild and precious life? Most of you are probably at least somewhat familiar with the the legendary story of the Buddha's life before his enlightenment, when he was uh, the young Prince Siddhartha living in the palace. I might give a, a longer talk on the life of the Buddha later in the retreat. We'll see. But there's the story of his life then and his encounter with what are called the four heavenly messengers. And in brief, the story goes that he, he was raised in uh, a very protected and pampered kind of luxurious uh, life in, in a palace of sorts. He had three palaces and he was sheltered from a lot of the unpleasant things in life. And then at some point he, he went out of the palace with his his chariot driver, Channa, and he went out on four occasions, it's said, and On the first one, he saw an old person, and he'd never seen an old person. They'd kept that away from him at home. And then the second time, he saw a sick person. And the third time, he saw a corpse. And he'd never seen these things, and he was shaken. He he asked his chariot driver about them. And in each, each case, the chariot driver said, that's an old person. Everyone grows old. You, too, will grow old, Prince. You, too, will become sick and death comes to all people you too will die sometime and he had never considered these things it said and and then on the fourth time he went out and he saw um, a renunciate someone who had left the worldly life and gone on a spiritual quest and saw this person uh, with a calm and radiant presence and he he thought well there's this this represents a possibility for some answer to these fundamental existential questions that are raised by seeing this, these heavenly messengers of old age and sickness and death. And so this was the very thing that propelled him on his spiritual quest was the, the contact and the contemplation with these, these very subjects. And these four heavenly messengers relate very directly to this, the list of the contemplations that I read before. You know, the first three are the exact same thing with old age, sickness and death and the fourth contemplation that I will be parted from all that is dear and beloved to me in a way reflects the choice that was made by the renunciate that the Buddha saw on his or the bodhisattva we would say on his fourth journey from the palace when he saw the renunciate. He, he saw someone who had already made the choice to part from much that was dear and beloved to them in order to be free of future suffering, in order to enter the spiritual life in a very full way. And so the monk or nun who leaves home life, like the renunciate in the story, and goes forth from home into homelessness, and they leave behind most of their possessions, their status, their family, any kind of sex life. They give up a lot of the comforts and luxuries that that we all have in our lives even if we live simply but they do this with the aim of maximizing the possibility for realizing freedom and this isn't to say that if we're truly serious meditators that we have to go and ordain and become monks and nuns this might or might not be an appropriate choice, but both lifestyles are conventions. They don't represent any kind of absolute truth of how we have to live. And in either case, the task for us as lay people or as monks and nuns is the same. Our task is to abandon the cause of suffering, to abandon clinging and craving. And this is the path to freedom, regardless of how we choose to live. And the fifth contemplation, which is the contemplation on reflection on the law of Kama, it doesn't have a direct parallel with these heavenly messengers, but there's a very direct relationship between it and the other four. In the simplest sense, you could say the law of Kama, of karma, is the law of cause and effect. And it's the understanding that our actions yield results and bear fruit according to their nature in a very lawful, way and that wholesome and beneficial actions bear positive results and lead to greater happiness and peace and unwholesome actions bear unwholesome fruit negative results and lead to greater suffering and if through our practice we begin to unravel some of our deep conditioning through coming to these kinds of contemplations and coming face to face with our fears. And through this, we broaden our understanding of what is possible for us as human beings. Then we can begin to see more and more clearly what really does lead to happiness and peace and freedom and what doesn't. And out of this, we make wiser choices in our lives, which brings more happiness And we see directly for ourselves, what is the cause of suffering? And we can begin to abandon it. We begin to let go of grasping and clinging and craving and our actions are born of a growing wisdom. And the result of this in a very natural way is an increase in wholesome beneficial actions and more beneficial results. So I want to look at these contemplations individually. I have a feeling I won't get through them all. In fact, I might not get past the first one, we'll see. But they, the same kinds of things apply to them all. So the first of these five contemplations, I am subject to aging, aging is unavoidable. And of course, we all know that we're getting older year by year. At least intellectually, we certainly do. But to what extent are we really willing to sit with this, to live with it, start to really know it in our cells, in our bones? I mean, living with the truth of aging puts us directly in touch with the truth of impermanence. You know, we might be fine with contemplating impermanence in a more abstract way or as it applies to things in the world around us, especially as it applies to things we are happy to see go away. You know, if we spend time out in nature this time of year, it's all around us. Impermanence is shouting at us in the woods, with leaves falling and plants are dying. But when it comes to ourselves, it's not so easy to be with know, it's okay out there in the woods. But we don't like to see our own bodies aging and changing. You know, we look in the mirror, we start seeing some gray hair. In my case, I see my forehead expanding, <laughs> hair getting thinner. You know, we don't like to see it, We we resist it, we deny that it's happening. You know, I have this place where my hair is getting very thin in the back it's getting a little bald back here and for quite a while you know I would look you know at the barber or the mirror where you can see the back of your head and I'd say oh it just it's always grown like that you know it's just a cowlick or you know (laughs) it's not really (laughs) falling out you know we we see these it's funny but we do this in so many ways we want to somehow exempt ourselves from the truth of change i mean i remember it's quite a long time ago now when i first got had people calling me sir who were younger you know <laughs> it's like if i'd been closer to their age i would have been you know okay but i was old enough to be called sir i had a friend i was one of my housemates uh, some time ago now, around the time I was getting called sir, she would come home and say, wow, I just got mammed. <laughs> Bummed out, you know, getting mammed is when someone calls you ma'am. <laughs> That's funny. Any of you been mammed lately? <laughs> you know, our met, our metabolism changed changes. I, I didn't have to think about what I ate up until a few years ago but middle-aged thickening starts to show up and can't just eat anything I want if I don't want to wear it around with me <laughs> I mean just recently I went into a store and someone offered to help me out to my car with the groceries and, <laughs> you know, thank you very much I can manage <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that old <laughs> but. You know, you know how it is when you're in your 20s, some of you in here maybe, you know, and once you're past a certain age, you're, you're hopeless and <laughs> you're over the hill. <laughs> you know, and I try to take care of myself. I exercise and ride my bike a lot when I'm home and I watch my diet some of the time at least and so I've decided I'm okay with being a middle-aged man, but as long as I'm a youthful middle-aged man. (laughs) (laughs) But these kinds of self-images, they're problematic, aren't they? You know, we use them to feel good about ourselves and to feel secure in a way, but they take a lot of maintenance. You know, they're constantly shoring them up. And we might find ourselves spending a lot of time and and even money, a lot of money, trying to keep our self-image intact. And then something happens in our they get shaken, our self-image gets shaken or even shattered. You know, someone calls us sir or ma'am or offers, offers us their seat on the bus or the train. That happened to me once, too. And suddenly our self-image is out of date, you know. And so our usual strategy then is to adjust it. You know, we adjust it a bit. It's like my decision to be okay with being middle-aged, but, you know, I'm a bouncy middle-aged, <laughs> something like that. But that's not the point of the contemplation, you know, the contemplation on aging isn't to make get us to be good at adjusting our self image. It's about moving beyond all images and about connecting with the truth of the way things are right now. So this truth of aging, aging unavoidable, I am subject to aging. If we look, much of what we experience with aging can be seen in terms of unpleasant feelings in the body and the mind. Let's take the body, for example. Let's say we wake up in the morning with some stiffness in our joints. I wake up in the morning and my back hurts most mornings. Or maybe we notice shortness of breath when we're out hiking that we didn't used to have. So it's an unpleasant bodily feeling has arisen. Dukkha Vedana, unpleasant feeling. And what often happens next is that instead of being mindful of this, we don't catch it at that point. And so then there's this whole story that starts to unfold in the mind. You know, there's this proliferation into the future sometimes that creates this image of us and suddenly, we're old and decrepit, probably senile. We're parked in a wheelchair somewhere. Or we're destitute and wandering aimlessly on the street. And our minds fill with fear and worry about this, this possible scenario. And we relate to this fantasy as some inevitable reality that's going to come to us. And it, it is, of course, it's wise to plan for old age. and So there may be some value to these worries in that sense, in that we actually, it's wise to make some plans. But the fear and suffering really don't have to be there. They're not necessarily have to be part of the equation. In a teaching in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha compared the difference between the experience of an, an everyday person, what's called a, an, an, un, what is it, an unenlightened worldling um, and someone with, with some wisdom in terms of their experience of unpleasant feelings in the body. He said this again, speaking to the monks, but to all of us, monks, when an everyday person experiences a painful feeling, he sorrows, grieves and laments. He weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. He feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one." And then he goes on to describe a simile. He said, it's like being shot with one arrow or one dart, and then immediately after being shot with another one. And he goes on to say, while experiencing that same painful feeling, he harbors aversion towards it. And then he seeks delight in sensual pleasures because he does not know of any escape from painful feelings other than sensual pleasures. And then the teaching continues in the case of the noble disciple, we could say in the case of one who has some wisdom, who has some clarity of seeing, when a noble disciple experiences a painful feeling, He does not sorrow, grieve, weep, beat his breast and lament. He feels one feeling, a bodily one, but not a mental one. So in essence, in that case, the second arrow isn't, there's not a second arrow there. A lot of the time we tend to assume that, that that second arrow is inevitable and we don't see that we're the ones who are drawing back the bow and shooting it into ourselves. An unpleasant, painful, bodily sensation is just that. And in and of itself, it might well be bearable. What isn't bearable is our aversion to it and all the proliferation of mind that often happens that creates a story about what it means and what's in store for us because of it. And we can become attached to and really identified with an image of ourself in some future, imagined future state, and this can become a reality in our minds. It can take over our world long after the initial unpleasant feeling may have disappeared or subsided. So the first arrow, to, the first of these arrows, is unavoidable. We're all going to feel some unpleasant painful feelings in the body that's unavoidable but the second one is optional and with practice we can see if we can learn to feel the first arrow and the whole thing may stop there or maybe we catch it a f- little further down the line maybe fear and worry start to arise maybe they do arise but then we see them we see them for what they really are we see how they've arisen because of this unpleasant feeling in the body and we can be with our fear and our worry and we can watch it pass away just like anything else because it too is impermanent so maybe we practice and we can come to terms with the inevitability of aging and of the body growing older and we start to not shoot the second arrow so often maybe that falls away but what about aging of the mind you know the mind is also subject to aging you know we can we see how mindfulness and our practice will serve us if we can stay alert and attentive how it will serve us as we age and as we deal with the changes of aging and with sickness and, and inevitably with our death but what if our brain starts to deteriorate What if our mind ceases to function well and our our ability to be mindful to practice begins to slip away? I mean, I'm 54, as I said, but I've noticed some diminishing powers of memory. You know, if I don't write it down, forget it a lot of the time. So I have a funny example just recently. Just, I was here for a meeting a couple, a month and a half ago or so, a couple months ago now. And uh, someone on staff here who works on the calendar and uh, for the retreat schedule said, oh, I see you're on the schedule for, for the fall of 2010. That's great. And I said, oh yeah? And then I thought, well, that's news to me. And I thought, well, maybe they just, you know, got ahead on the calendar part, but I didn't quite get around to asking me or something. And then I actually emailed Rebecca, and uh, she said, you know, Joseph, asked you back in the spring, and <laughs> I just had no memory of it. It was really, um, well, I got, I've gotten a really good calendar going now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was just, like, not there. So I have a... This is a poem from called Forgetfulness from Billy Collins. Maybe you've heard it, it's very good. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, <laughs> the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, <laughs> never even heard of, <laughs> as if one by one, the memories you used to harbor, decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. (laughs) Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. (laughs) And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away, a state flower perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, (laughs) not even lurking in some (laughs) obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L as far as you can recall. (laughs) Well, on your own way to oblivion or you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. I visit, when I visit my parents, you know, I I look at them. They both have some symptoms of what what they're calling dementia. In my mom's case, it's quite severe. She's very confused a lot of the time. She talks to me as though I'm her brother or someone else. And in terms of short-term memory, she doesn't remember anything for that long. So we wind up having the same conversation over and over. <laughs> and, you know, I think, well, is this what's in store for me? You know, I take after my mother more than my dad. And these kinds of things tend to be hereditary. So a pretty good chance if I live as long as they have. And there's a lot of fear in our culture around, about this kind of thing. You know, many of the, many of us fear loss of our mental abilities much more than than having things go wrong with our body, than the decay of our body as we grow older, or even getting sick. Hmm. Really running out of time, okay. Hmm. I have had the good fortune on a few occasions some years ago, to meet a very respected, very beloved Cambodian Buddhist monk named Venerable Mahagosananda. Some of you have, I'm sure, heard of him. He lived, um, for his last years of his life, he lived in a monastery not far from here, about 45 minutes away. And I visited him there. And also, he he did stop by IMS on a few occasions that I know of. he was very loved and very, very respected. He was uh, the Sangha Raja of Cambodian Buddhism, which is the Dhamma, the Sangha King, a very honorific title. And he lived to be 94 years old. He died in Northampton about an hour from here at age 94, I, I believe, although there's some, some difference of opinion on how old he actually was. And he was very active. He was a peace activist. He worked a lot as an advocate for banning uh, landmines and would do these long yatras, long, long walks in uh, Cambodia to call attention to the terrible uh, things that come from landmines that are left in the ground, maiming children and things like this. And he was nominated five times for the Nobel Peace Prize. I, I'm not sure if he ever received it there's this beautiful photo of him with the Dalai Lama in, the, in this little um, photo gallery at Spirit Rock Center. And they're both bowing with their hands in Anjali in this gesture of respect. And each one is trying to get lower than the other. <laughs> they're like bent over, you know, almost to the ground, each one trying to show the greater respect. It's, it's very um, touching, beautiful photo. But in his later years, Mahagosananda suffered from from Alzheimer's disease and he lost a lot of his mental capacities. And I remember I, one time I visited him and he, I went and he was in his room, a very simple small room, and he just started, he started handing me presents, gifts of things that he had in there. And he didn't speak at that time, but he had this incredible radiant smile on his face. And, and the whole room seemed to fill with this, metta field, the power of his metta, of his loving kindness and was so strong and the purity of his presence was so strong. And, you know, he had a very childlike demeanor at that time, but, but the power of his presence was amazing. It was like being bathed in love and light to be around him. Hmm. There's a story I read about um, the great Indian teacher, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, who lived and taught in Bombay. He, he taught until he was quite elderly. And at one time when he was in his 80s, someone asked him what it was like to be an old yogi, and he replied, oh, I just watched senility come in. I see the memory decompose on an almost daily basis. <laughs> and he roared with laughter. <laughs> so maybe he was pointing to something a bit larger, you know, beyond the brain and the capacities of the thinking mind. Something in awareness that has the capacity to observe it all. To observe the thinking mind and all of the cognitive processes, even as they start to deteriorate. And, you know, we've all, I think, had some indication of this possibility in our, in our daily practice. You know, when we see the arising and passing of thoughts or memories of different kinds of mental activity. And what is it that knows this arising and passing of thought? There's some aspect of awareness that's much larger, I could say larger and deeper than the thinking mind. And as our practice unfolds, we connect with this awareness more and more intimately and deeply. And this pure awareness is not affected by anything You know, its quality could be likened to the sky or open space in a way. You know, all sorts of things can appear in it, pass through it, arise within it, pass away within it, but it's not affected by those things. Just as the sky isn't affected when birds and clouds and things pass through it. So aging and illness and death. All of that can arise within that, but our awareness can remain unaffected and unperturbed. Mm. Okay, This is where I go to the next contemplation, but I think time is not going to permit. Maybe I'll do this in two parts or something. I'll read just a little bit here uh, on that subject of illness. There's a teaching in uh, the Samyutta Samyutta Nikaya where um, the Buddha is talking to a householder, Nakulapita, who has come to him for advice and And he comes and pays respects to the Buddha and sits down. The Buddha is living among the bhagas at crocodile haunt in the Besakala Grove. What's the crocodile haunt like? And so he says, Nakulapitta sits down, he says, Lord, I'm a feeble old man, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life. I am afflicted in body and ailing with every moment. It's rare that I can come to see the Blessed One. Please give me teachings. And the Buddha says So it is, householder, so it is. The body is afflicted, weak, and encumbered. And so you should train yourself. Nakulapita, even though I may be afflicted in body, my mind will be unafflicted. That is how you should train yourself. So this is our training. Even though I may be afflicted in body, my mind will be unafflicted. On one occasion, the venerable Anuruddha was dwelling in Savati in the blind men's grove. And he was sick and afflicted and gravely ill and a number of monks, a number of bhikkhus approached him. And they said, they asked this question, how does the venerable Anuruddha dwell so that the arisen painful bodily feelings do not persist obsessing his mind? And he replied thus, it is friends because I dwell with a mind well established in the four foundations of mindfulness that the arisen painful bodily feelings do not persist obsessing my mind. And then he goes on with the description of how he contemplates the body in the body and feelings in the feelings and so forth, this traditional description. <laughs> so this is the same as the Buddha's advice to Nakulapita. You know, this is that advice put into practice being afflicted in body, but not afflicted in mind. So it comes back to this practice of mindfulness of the four foundations. You know, it can be really, really simple. Everything comes back to, to this, to mindfulness. Hmm. There's a book that was a great resource for me in working on this talk. Uh, it's called Living in the Light of Death by Larry Rosenberg, which I highly recommend it if you'd like a detailed exploration of these uh, five contemplations. And in there, he quotes a uh, famous 13th century Zen master named Dogen. And Dogen was once asked, what is the awakened mind? And he replied, it is the mind that is intimate with all things. And I think this simple statement is so beautiful. It points really directly to the unfolding of our practice. In a way, we could say that our practice is the process of extending, expanding the boundaries of what we're willing to be intimate with. And you could say the awakened mind, the enlightened heart is the heart, the mind without boundaries. In the poem, Burt Norton, T.S. Eliot says humankind cannot bear very much reality. But this is our practice, isn't it? We're taking a stand on reality and we're becoming as intimate as we possibly can with life's unfolding moment by moment. And what, in some ways, what could be more intimate than directly touching our own mortality and our own aging and death. So these contemplations can be very fruitful, part of our practice. They can help us to connect with what really matters in life. And they can help us expand the realm of what we hold as possible for us as human beings and point us directly to in the direction of freedom. So I'll leave you with a a kind of an aging poem. It's called, I Don't Use a Desk. I don't use a desk, just bent knees that are old and creaking now, like the timbers in a barn leaning and in need of repair. But my mind is young and its gaze, heaven's play, the sun at my shoulder, a peacock calling and the old horse nibbling at my palm when he dares to come near. I love to wait for the shadows on the leaves to light candles and listen to the owls screech across the valley when the sun is just out of reach and the world is a breath of purple haze. On a blank wood floor, barefoot, night in the doorway on the threshold of silence. Poem by Aya Medanandi. So we can sit quietly together for a a minute and I'll ring the bell. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. It's a period of walking meditation now and metta-chanting at 9.15. For those who wish to come, please be welcome. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.